Please pray with me. God, lift us up, call us out, and lead us on. That we may stand on our own two feet. That we may find our voice in yours. And that we may go about the task you have called us to as whole, free, and living people. Amen. I'll never forget the first credit card that I got. I was 18 years old and got bombarded with all of these advertisements and like some welcome to college packet because it's the American way, right? Welcome to college. Get yourself in exorbitant amounts of debt now. It was an AT&T Universal card that I could use as a phone card. But one of the things I learned really quickly about this AT&T Universal card is that you had these magical codes that you could enter and they would give you money for it, right? And that money was useful for things like books, right? Yeah, no. Uh, It was a transition in life at the beginning of college from dependence to what I thought was independence, right? I thought I'd finally arrived, here I was on my own, but what I want to describe it as now is from dependence to blissful irresponsibility, right? So that season lasted for a while, and then I remember moving into my first apartment in Arizona, uh, my first big kid job, I guess, my first adult job as a youth pastor at a church in Tucson, Arizona, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried after my dad left, because the blissful irresponsibility was over, and now I really was feeling some sort of frightening independence. There was tears and there was the fears and some tears for fears (laughs) of knowing that I was alone. And again, I thought I'd arrived, that I'd gotten to a place and that this is what life was going to be, that this is what it was going to be. But it kept going from there. And later I went back to seminary and I met a lovely, lovely young lady and we had a couple children and I entered into more churches. And I, it shift from frightening independence to a time that I've been calling humbling responsibility, right? Another season of life with a partner, with children, with churches and people that are dependent on me. I think it keeps going from there, too. I've learned enough times that I haven't arrived, that it keeps changing, that we keep growing, and that there's more coming. Yes, it is. It's a journey that we all take, but it's not one we always do well, right? We make mistakes on the way. Think of it this way. It can be really embarrassing to look back on your past, right? I remember that boat dance at North Park. That was a bad scene for me. But it can can be embarrassing, but it can also be painful, and it can involve loss and letting go. And in fact, though, that letting go, that process of letting go is a necessary step as part of our growing. Ken Wilber, one of my favorite authors, uh, a spiritual writer, a philosopher, writes about uh, the path of consciousness and maturity and what he calls the four ups. And he says that we grow up, we wake up, we clean up, and we show up. And that these are all journeys that we all engage on. Growing up is psychological growth into a whole person. 
uh, maturing into a sense of self and identity. Waking up is about spiritual transformation and growth, about the ways that we grow and change as a spiritual person. Cleaning up is about dealing with our shadows, dealing with our false selves, dealing with the loss and the pain and the heart hurt that's a part of our lives. And showing up is about integrating our whole self into community, into society as a mature and full person. Now you can see how in thinking about these four ups, growing up, waking up, cleaning up, and showing up, we never really get any of those tasks done, right? And they're not linear, they're not something that there's a beginning and an end, there's a circling back and a repeating and a starting over again, over and over again. Other language that Wilbur uses about this process of growth and maturity is he calls, he says, transcending and including is part of how we deal with the the embarrassment, the loss, the pain, Uh, that comes from growing up. He reminds us that the past is a stepping stone to the growth that we have, uh, that it's a place that we mark, but we transcend it. We include it as a part of our journey and a part of our story, but we transcend it and move on and into something new. Richard Rohr introduced me to some language that's really a part of all spiritual traditions that talks about the two halves of life, about the spirituality of two halves of life, and about how we spend part of our life doing and trying to build something, and we spend part of our life trying to be something, from doing to being. One of my favorite images that Rohr talks about in that two halves of life journey, and I think I've shared it with you before, as he said, we spend half of our lives climbing a ladder only to realize that it's leaning against the wrong building. So this isn't just these four ups of growing up, waking up, cleaning up, showing up, uh, this transcending and including, these two halves of life. This isn't just an individual journey. It's a collective social experience as well. It's something that societies go through. It's something that communities go through. It's even something that churches go through as well. But a big part of our growth, a big part of that step of letting go depends on how we appropriate the liminal spaces that we encounter. How do we handle the moments of change and transition that we're confronted with? Sometimes we revert back to old norms. We root it in sentimentality and nostalgia, things like that. Sometimes we violently defend the status quo, violently defend it. The irony is that oftentimes sentimentality and nostalgia become what causes us to violently defend the status quo because we claim a false victimhood about ways ways things are changing around us. But the mature way, the best way, is to transcend and include. To transcend, to grow and include what has come before, marking it as a moment on a journey, but moving on to what is new, to what we're called to in the moment, what's being unfolded before us. I think this is why ritual is so important in our growth too, right? I think sometimes ritual is what allows us to leave things behind. You know, the people of Israel put up a pile of stones on the shore of the Jordan before they crossed as a way to remember where they'd been, but also as a way to mark that they were entering into something new, that God was up to something new. And we do this as well in lots of ways. We mark our transitions, and they help us to enter a new stage, to embrace a new season, and to honor the wholeness, the good and the bad, of the ways that we've been in the past. 
both the things that embarrass us, both the things we're, and as well as the things that we're proud of and the things that are painful. So why all of this on a day about the disciples and the Great Commission? It's because of this. I think the disciples were in a liminal space of growth and maturity on that hilltop all those years ago, and they had a choice to make as well. See, they were taking on the vocation of the embodied Christ in the world, and they had to grow up, wake up, clean up, and show up in order to do that. Sometimes I think maybe for them, though, that liminal moment, that moment of change was probably the next day, right? Can you imagine being there in that moment? Uh, Jesus is saying these things and floats up on a cloud and things like that. I mean, that's enough for one day to process, right? Then they go home, they do their thing, they wake up the next day and they're like, holy, that happened, right? <laughs> think of your own bold moments and think of the way, uh, the big transitions in your own life and the way that sometimes it's the next day before it really settles in. In the moment of change, so much is happening, but the hard work of those questions, I think, often comes or starts the next day. So what's the next day like? Sometimes it's dark, sometimes it's depressing, but it's hard work. It's always hard work to internalize what's coming next and how to appropriate the past. Speaking about this story of the Great Commission and the Ascension, this this story that we know, go and make disciples of all nations and then up into the clouds. 20th century spiritualist Raymond Panikar says, Christ's departure does not signify the departure of God from the world, but rather the release of God into the world. Listen to that again. Christ's departure does not signify the departure of God from the world, but rather the release of God into the world. Because you see those 11 disciples gathered there, as well as you, 2,000 years later, you are the release of God into the world. See, this isn't simply a story about the ascension of Jesus. It's about the growth and maturity of the disciples, as well as all of us who call ourselves disciples today. It's about living that next day, that hard work of the next day, of internalizing what's happened and what we've heard on that day and the day after that and the day after that and on and on. So how did they do that and what can we learn from them? I heard a definition of discipleship once that I really like that says that to be a disciple of someone else is to learn from them, to follow them, and to imitate them. That that's the path of growing up. That's the path that we take as spiritual people, to learn, to follow, and to imitate. But what I want to say is that there's another step, there's a second half of that journey that maybe comes after Jesus ascends and we're on to the next day. And that's the movement to maturity that involves unlearning, showing the way and leading and embodying. So learn, follow, imitate, to unlearn, lead and embody. First, unlearning, challenging assumptions, including what we discover by finding a new way. In the Acts passage that was read for us this morning about Peter uh, speaking, preaching in the early church, I love the sentence where it says, 
I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, there's, <clears throat> there's another translation of that story, of that passage, that doesn't say I truly understand, which I don't think gets this, the heart of it, but says, I now understand. Something new has happened. He's unlearning something and taking a different path. He's letting go of what's been in his past and going in a new direction. He's changed. He's grown up, and there's new ways of being for him in relationship to the world. In the Gospel of John, it's Peter who's the one that chops off the ear, right, of the guards who come to arrest Jesus. But here he is saying, now I know, now I get it. He's entered this liminal space, he's changed, and he's let go of his understandings of God's presence and work in the world before. And his coming visions, as we know, will reveal more and more of this. See, I think true spiritual maturity involves a journey of unlearning, of letting go of the childish things that we hold on to, and of maturing into new ways of being in the world, of being in ourselves, and in being in relationship to others. What do we cling to that we need to let go of? What have we learned that we need to unlearn? I think Christian spirituality in the West is in a liminal moment of unlearning, of needing to let go. And it's around inclusion and the spirituality that the walls are crumbling in this spiritual liminal moment. Inclusion and spirituality and all that that means, in sexuality and gender and religion and socioeconomic status and ability as well. One of my favorite metaphors of spirituality, again from this Ken Wilbur, is an image of a deep current, an underground river that courses through all of life and of all of human life. And he talks about the spiritual traditions uh, of the world and how each of them has sought to dig a deep well to access that water. And he talks about what does spiritual maturity look like today. And his word, and his image, it's to, it's to be in our well to acknowledge the wisdom of the other wells, to be, but to learn from the richness of our well as well. It's an inclusion of spirituality. The current trend, as we've seen in San Diego, in Christ Church, in Pittsburgh, and other places, the current trend is to harm and to violate one another. It's not to include and welcome one another. So the radical question of spiritual maturity is how do we live with one another? How do we honor one another? How do we unlearn the divisions, that are, the walls that we've built in our past to love one another, as Panneker says, as, God, as Christ in the world? We also need to lead. We need to show the way with boldness. Apostle Paul, I think, is a great image of this. Goes from persecutor to proclaimer, right? He never even met Jesus. Read it closely. Paul never meets Jesus until this encounter of the divine of Christ on the road. And he had his own journey of unlearning that he had to go through too, right? Is his blindness in some ways a metaphor for his own unlearning of needing to let go of things that he held on to? 
And then he did the hard work of showing the way, of leading, of translating the way of Christ, of being Christ in the world for new people in a new time and a new context. For them, it was about food and penises. For us, still sometimes it's about penises, frankly. But how, is our, how are we a, the way of Christ translated for new people in a new time and a new context? We model, in it and what, we model it in what we value and do as communities and how we are seen by those around us, how we live with our neighbors and with each other. I ask, though, where's the church leading the way on anti-racism? Where is the church showing the way, challenging rampant anti-Semitism and white supremacy? The harsh reality is that too often, the people that are supposed to be the spiritually mature ones, the people that are supposed to be showing the way, leading with boldness, that the church becomes a place that allows or even foments these falsities and these lies. But true maturity is to lead the way as Christ in the world and to stand up to everything that is anti-Christ. Teresa of Avila says, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. How can we expect people to follow Christ when we won't lead? When we wait for something else and for someone else? Finally embodied, internalized, not just some message, not just someone whose footsteps we walk in, but who lives within and that we are deeply in touch with. Embodied and culturally relevant spirituality that makes sense for us. Can we be honest about the state of the church in North America for a second? It's crumbling, right? It's failing. There's two reasons, I think. The lack of leadership is one, what we just talked about. We're often coming from behind. But another is, I think, a childish and adolescent spirituality that fails to take the current moment seriously. Two, three hundred years ago, we had this thing called the Enlightenment and the scientific, revelation, or the scientific Revolution that changed the way that we talked in society about truth and fact. And we conflated these two words into one. And the church got busy with a project deciding that, okay, if truth and fact are the same thing, we're going to spend all of our time trying to justify what's, what's factual and what's not about our stories, what actually happened and what's didn't. And some people just go the route of a fundamentalist approach of just defending it to the end of the day. Others dismiss everything and saying it's all just story. But what I want us to say is that when we, lo- when we conflated truth and fact, what we actually ended up doing is stopping paying attention to what they all actually mean, what these stories actually mean. We insisted so much on the factuality of our stories instead of focusing on the depth of meaning that's at the heart of them. 
And modern people, intelligent people like all of us, said, well, that's just silliness. We settled for a disembodied spirituality that keeps the presence of God locked up in stories in a book from an ancient culture, rather than taking seriously that we, in the fullness of who we are as modern 21st century people, are in fact the release of God into the world. See, there's room for boldness and humility. Let me try to explain. Our best guess is that the Big Bang happened like 13.6 or 7 billion years ago, right? Homo sapiens, the wise ones, as that means, what a silly name for us, (laughs) rose to prominence in Africa about 100,000 years ago. Homo sapiens began to leave that continent and spread out into other parts of the world about 50,000 years ago. Probably by 20,000 years ago is when they think that Homo sapiens began to dominate the earth, that they were the, they were the largest and most influential creatures on the planet. And about 5,000 years ago is when the great religious traditions of our world were all basically born. Karen Armstrong, in her book, The Great Transformation, points this out. That within the last 6,000 years, Judaism, Buddhism, Hindu, Christianity, Islam, and more were all born. And when you think of them, and when you think of them in light of that timeline of the existence of our planet, of of our cosmos, of human beings themselves, we're babies. We're infants in our understanding of the spirit and practice of what it means to live fully as spiritual people. We only know the tip of the iceberg. We are in our infancy in understanding the divine. So I think that a bold yet humble embodied faithfulness is the necessary paradox of mature spirituality. The opposite of this is a form of biblicism and fundamentalism that exists on the right and the left that's just childish spirituality that refuses to grow up, refuses to grow up. And that inability to grow up, to mature, has led us to justify things like crusades, to use the Bible to defend slavery, to use it to oppress women, to reject LGBTQ people, and more and more and more. Spiritual maturity, though, is a bold yet humble faithfulness embodied in people who can take a deep breath and recognize that we all are the release of God into the world. So what's the task they were given? Go and make disciples, not just their mission to others, but within themselves, right? The the maturity of spirituality is the mission of the church. It's to grow up, to wake up, to clean up, and to show up. Anything that limits that should be dismissed. The problem is knowing well what's limiting that, right? And so that's where the maturity and dialogue and community and conversation is needed. It's hard to know what's limiting, what's necessary, and what we hold on to. But our, task is, our collective task for a church is, to, is our task 
as maturing spiritual people. Our job is to graciously and mercifully give name and shape to the movement and stirring of the spirit and the creation in the current moment. Can I say that again? Our job, this is what I think the Great Commission means. Our job is to graciously and mercifully give name and shape to the movement and stirring of the spirit in the creation in our current moment. It's to unlearn what's broken and irrelevant and unnecessary about our past. It's to lead and show the way of justice and love and peace. And it's to embody it in our own souls and in our own communities in a way that makes the most sense in our world today. Because we are called to go and make disciples, we are called to grow up and to call others to maturity as well. We are the release of God into the world.